0: Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with screenwriter William D. Whitliff. Mr. Whitliffe has written Raggedy Man, Lonesome Dove, and Barbarossa. Barbarossa will be shown Saturday, March 10, 2018 at 2 p.m. at the main library on 615 Church Street in the auditorium. More later, on to the interview. We are showing Barbarossa, which is an original screenplay. Could you discuss the origins of the script? My
1: grandfather told me a story when I was a boy about an old man he knew who wore his hair long and combed it down over his ears because his ears had been cut off when he was a boy uh, when he got caught with his father stealing some horses and they executed the father, and they started to execute the boy, but somebody in the in the bunch said, no, you know, give him another chance. So they cut his ears off to mark him, and as a reminder, and he went through life without his ears. And my grandfather knew him when he was, you know, when my grandfather was older. Now, I don't know whether that's true story. My grandfather was a wonderful storyteller. But, you know, I thought about that story, and I was, if you want to hear a little more of where it came from. Yes. uh, I was working on a visual history of Dallas, and I was driving back and forth, back and forth, from Austin to Dallas, and the radio didn't work. So I started thinking about that story. And... It came to me in images, and I wasn't writing, so I just kind of logged the images in. And my trips back and forth to Dallas lasted for a little little over a month or right at a month. And by the time I finished going back and forth to Dallas, I had seen a whole story. So every time I'd get in the car, I would pick the story up and then, you know. So I finished gathering the pictures for the Dallas book. At the same time, I finished, you know, seeing Barbarossa or a version of Barbarossa in my head. So then I sat down and wrote it as a screenplay, though at that time, I had never seen a screenplay. Right after I finished writing it, and I had it typed and it was on my desk, and my friend Bud Shrake, who was a... a writer for Sports Illustrator and a novelist. And he had written a couple of movies, including Kid Blue, which Dennis Hopper started. Anyway, Bud was in my office, and he saw it on the desk. And he said, oh, you're writing screenplays. And I said, well, I've written one. You know, I have no idea. And he said, well, let me read it. So Bud took it home with him, and he called me back the next morning. And he said, well, this damn thing will sell. And I said, how? And he said, let me send it to my agent. His agent was a lady named Cindy Degner, who was the wife of Sterling Lord in New York. Sterling Lord, at that time, was one of the biggest literary agents in the country. Anyway, Cindy read it. She absolutely hated it. Wrote me a two-page letter condemning it and criticizing it and so on. I wrote her a note back and thanked her for her comments, but told her I wasn't looking for a critic. I was looking for a salesman. So she then sent it to two producers who had done The French Connection. I mean, her thought was that, you know, they would hate it and they would straighten me out. But as it happened, they loved it. And they had a deal with I don't know if it's NBC or CBS or somebody, to do a television series. And they said if I would move to L.A., that they would do Barbarossa as, as a television series. But I didn't want to move to L.A. So I said, no, I won't do that. Anyway, they called back and forth, back and forth, back and forth uh, for a couple of weeks, and then I never heard from them again. But it made me think that, you know, I could, I could write screenplays. And it was a number of years before I got Barbarossa made. Uh, I got other other screenplays made before Barbarossa. Yeah. But that's where it started.
0: Okay. At the end of the movie, uh, the credits of Barbarossa, it stated a Whitliff-Nelson-Busey production. And how did you three come together to make Barbarossa?
1: Well, I, I, I knew Willie. And uh, so I told Willie I'd written this and said, you know, I'd love to show it to you. So I met Willie, I think, out of his ranch. Willie stuck his fingers in it just somewhere in the middle and uh, opened it. And he read, I don't know, three or four pages or whatever. And he said, well, I want to be this guy. Of course, that suited me. And then I guess I had met Busey before then. Willie had met Busey. So anyway, we showed it to Busey. Now, what does it say at the end of the movie?
0: It says a uh, Whitliff-Nelson-Busey production.
1: No, well, Busey was not a producer. So I, I've never seen that. I don't know where that comes from.
0: Well, it, it, I promise <laughs> you it's there.
1: <laughs> oh, I know I believe you, but, uh, but just, you know, but Busey was not a producer.
0: You were a co-producer on Barbarossa, and this was Fred Skipsy's, uh, uh, an Australian, his first American film. How did you come to hire him?
1: Fred actually came to the United States to direct another film I did called Raggedy Man, which Sissy Spacek starred in and Sam Shepard. But Fred got sideways, I think, with the studio, and on that one, so all of a sudden, he didn't have a film. And I thought Fred would be wonderful for Barbarossa. So, you know, I showed it to Fred. And then, uh, you know, we got with Universal. They they liked uh, the Tana Jimmy Blacksmith, which was an Australian film that Fred had made, directed, and so on. And so uh, they said, OK, yeah, he'd, he'd be fine to direct it. So that's where Fred came from.
0: You made this comment earlier and you stated with Raggedy Man, you began with an image, and this is what I do in research an image of a photograph. And most of your scripts start with an image. What is it about the image that motivates you to write?
1: Well, um, I'm kind of image driven, but you you look at an image and you know, I always think, and, and you know, there's a story behind it. If it's an interesting picture, there's an interesting story behind it. And if I don't know what that story is, you know, you make up one. But I just do that automatically. I mean, I'm not necessarily trying to make up a story, but if I see an interesting picture uh, and I don't know what the story is behind it, I just automatically just start thinking of a narrative to go along with the visual.
0: So... How autobiographical is Raggedy Man?
1: Well, it's based on where my mom—my father was a terrible drunk. My mother left him with my brother and me, and I mean, you know, I was 18 months old. My brother was, I guess, four. She had no money. Basically, she had nobody to help her. She got a job with the telephone company running the little telephone office in Gregory, Texas during World War Two. I mean she worked the switchboard twenty literally twenty four hours a day. I mean she slept the switchboard. We slept on a pallet underneath her. And of course I used to think that our father really wanted to be with us but couldn't for, you know, this circumstance or some circumstance. So I think I probably wrote Raggedy Man trying to create a better father than our real father was. You know, it was a a wish. So that's pretty much where that came from. And also to salute our mother, because she was a really, truly great lady, not only to us, but, I mean, you know, the whole world came through that little switchboard during World War II. I mean, that's where people got the call from the government that said their husband, son, cousin, lover, whatever, uh, had been killed in action. Or, in some cases, where they got the call that the husband or brother or whatever that they thought was missing in action had been found and was okay. And, I mean, whole families came into the telephone office, which was really the front room and a little house very much like the house in men You know, and, and the sound from them was the same whether they were getting joyous news or devastating news which was, you know, cries. So we were just kind of raised with the whole world coming coming through our house like that. And it was, you know, for what I wound up doing. Telling, trying to tell stories. I mean, it was wonderful because, you know, life in the law came through there.
0: There's that scene with Eric Roberts. He's the sailor. He's yeah. going to visit his girlfriend, and he finds out she's married some other guy. Was that, yeah. was that based yeah, on Yeah, that you?
1: was, yeah, it was. Uh, now, I don't know, they, uh, my mother and uh, the sailor had that relationship, but there was a sailor who, you know, came to call his girlfriend. I think she was in Oklahoma or wherever. To so, say, you know, he was hitchhiking home, and, and he didn't get her. He got the mother, or the father, or somebody, and said, "Well, she had gotten married." So that's where that came from. Okay. But there was so much to pull on. I mean, you know, there were less than a hundred phones in that part of Texas, in that part we were living in, and Mother knew where every one of those phones was. So when somebody would get a call from the government, you know, most of the time those people didn't have a phone, but Mother knew that just down the road or, you know, around the corner and two miles away, somebody did have a phone, and so she would call them, they would go get get the people, and they would come to the telephone office to get the call. I mean, it was just, it was just, and it was during World War II. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. And Great was also near Corpus Christi, who, of course, it was right on the Gulf. And, um, you know, there were many, many nights when they thought that the Japanese were flying over or whatever and would have blackouts, you know, where we'd pull black curtains down and cause the idea if a plane flew over, you know, You didn't want them to be able to see housewives. So that was just, you know, it was just that time in history.
0: You once said the ultimate theme of all my films is people need people. And what's your attraction to that theme?
1: Oh, I think that's just being human. You know, I was, you know, again, given how my brother and I were raised, I mean, you know, mother was, mother literally, Was at that switchboard 24 hours a day. And, you know, sometimes she had time for us, but sometimes she didn't. You know, so my brother and I were both very much uh, conscious of, of people being there or people being absent, you know. So that's where that comes from. It's just, also, I think it's absolutely true. You know, people do need people.
0: Irving Kirshner, the director of the Empire Strikes Back and the Flimfam Man, was going to direct your uh, script, Thaddeus Rose and Eddie, uh, a script you wrote. And I'm a fan of Irving Kirshner. And you said about him, Kirsh is a marvelous teacher. He kind of took me under his wing and gave me an education in screenwriting. Could you talk about that education he gave you?
1: Yeah, Kirsh was, Kirsch was a great blessing of my life as as far as movies are concerned, because, I, you know, when I wrote my first script, I'd never even seen one. And when I got to L.A. to visit with Kirshner about, you know, the idea of doing Sledge and Eddie, Kirsch recognized two things about me. One, he thought I might have a little talent, but two, he knew I did not have the vaguest notion of what I was doing, you know writing, writing movies or, or about the movie thing. So he just said, here's, here's what happens. And he said, you know how a movie gets made, don't you? I said, no, I don't. He said, here's what happens. He said, every morning at 10 o'clock, he said, there are five doors in Hollywood that open to a little narrow crack. And he said, those are five guys who can get a movie made. And he said, every morning there are hundreds, sometimes thousands of people standing outside that door with scripts. And he said, some of them really great scripts, some of them not real great. So, But he said at about one minute past ten, a hand reaches out and it grabs one guy and it says, fame and riches for you and nothing for the rest of you. And he says, and that's how Hollywood worked. And then, I mean, that was his first lesson to them. And then, I mean, he was so good at talking about scripts and so on. And, you know, I had written some stuff and he said, this is a wonderful scene. But he said, you know, we will never be able to afford an actor good enough to do this. You know, so we're going to have to bring this down or find another way to do it. Because he said, if you don't have a good actor, this this will just flop and I learned that that was very true, that if you, you know, if you didn't have the actor with chops t- to do a particular scene, you better either get a better scene or get a get a better actor. But he was wonderful in all respects. I mean, he just he just could not have been nicer. Um, and more, and just, I mean, he, I mean, he was a great mentor. And I was out there the first time I ever went. I was out there for a week. And I was with Kirshner uh, every minute of the you know, of the day. And part of it was we were talking about Sledge and Eddie, but the greater part of it he was just educating me on writing for film, dealing with the business of it, dealing with actors, dealing with directors. Just I mean, just it was just a graduate course in movie making. What a blessing he was.
0: Thaddeus Rose and Eddie was made into a movie for television starring Johnny Cash and Bo Hopkins and directed by Jack Starrett. How do you feel about the movie?
1: Well, it was a television movie. I think it's all right. Yeah, I think it's all right. Johnny was good and Bo was good. I love Johnny Cash. I mean, he was terrific and great fun to be around and so on. And his wife as well. Jack Starrett was a Texas boy with a lot of spunk. We made it in Texas. It was, you know, it was all it was all great fun, and I learned a lot.
0: Could you discuss the challenges in adapting Larry McMurtry's epic novel *Lonesome Dove* into a 400-page script for a miniseries?
1: Well, it was. It, I mean, it was a great pleasure. What I did with with that one, we have a place at South Padre, which is six hours away from Austin, and. Suzanne DePass, who was president of Motown, she's the one who optioned Larry's book for a miniseries. And Suzanne and I became partners. We published it together. But Suzanne was the original mother as far as the television miniseries was concerned. And Suzanne had somebody read the whole book on tape. And I would get in my pickup and drive down to South Padre with that tape in my tape layer and listen to somebody reading that book. And it was six hours down there, which equaled just about one episode of the miniseries. And what was wonderful about doing it that way, of course, I'd already read the book, but what was wonderful about listening to it like that, you were listening and not writing, then you were imagining the visuals, you you know, and I would listen and say, oh, I need that. And say, oh, I don't need that. I can do without that, and so. On. So I was able to kind of edit the book down to what I thought were the best possible things to put in the in the screenplay. So I would I would drive down to South Padre. I'd listen for six hours, then I would write for a week, and I would come back and listen to the next six hours, and then you know, and then I would rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. But that's how I did the first draft of the whole thing was, you know, driving down there and then you know, staying and writing for a week at a time. But Larry's writing is so visual and it was it was a great pleasure to, to do that when I didn't have to struggle for, you know, things to put in. I mean the struggle was there was so much stuff there that, you know, it was an art of omission. I mean, what do you leave out? But there were, there were things, you know, I had to leave out because, you know, they just, you just didn't have room for them all. But that was a great pleasure to write Lonesome Dove, and it was a great pleasure to make it.
0: Are your photographs used in the opening credit sequences of The Lonesome Dove?
1: No, those are stills we made out of film, uh, where we just froze the moving picture and then, you know, used an image right out of the film. But my picture's... And there's a book called A Book of Photographs from Lonesome Dove. But those were made while we were shooting, you know, and I photographed the, the whole time. Okay. But the ones used in the credits were actually clips out of the moving film.
0: In an interview, Robert Duvall stated Gus McCrae of Lonesome Dove and Red Bovey in A Night in Old Mexico were two of his favorite parts. And... You wrote both scripts, and what is it about your writing that clicks with Robert Duvall? Well,
1: uh, I think he probably should be the one to answer that, not me. I mean, I, you know, they're very human, and, and Bobby is, I mean, he, you know, what, what makes him great is he really gets the human aspect of all these characters that he plays. And so I guess you would have to ask him, but I I would guess what he's talking about is, you know, the human elements in those people are human elements that he responds to. And, you know, and wants to play. And of course, he's absolutely brilliant in both of those parts. In fact, I wrote, this is interesting. I mean, I wrote uh, Night No Mexico before... Lonesome Dove, the book came out and Bobby and I had talked about doing it long ago, like 30 years ago or whatever. And then we made Lonesome Dove. And then after we made Lonesome Dove, we said, boy, you know, Red Bovey from Nightno Mexico, may be a little close to Gus. So so we just set it aside for years. For fear people think we were robbing one character for the other, but he liked both of those characters, and of course I did too. But you know, Larry and I—I mean—they're both Texans, and, and you, you can't escape characters like that. I mean, they're real; they're not—they're not made they're not out of the air. So,
0: you wrote and directed red headed Stranger* based on Willie Nelson's album, and. Uh, how did you take Willie Nelson's concept album and turn it into a script for a feature film?
1: Again, just started making a story of it, you know. And it was, I mean, you know, the it was. I mean, it was in the songs. I say it was in the songs. I mean, I found enough in the songs that I could string together and, you know, build bridges between. And also, I, I mean, I love Willie, and Willie and I've been friends and done three movies together. I think, I guess, yeah, three movies together. So it was, again, that's another one that was just fun. And it was fun to write that. I mean, you know, there was enough in the Psalms to give me the semblance of a story. And then I was able to bridge over the parts that had to be created. That was a great fun project, too, because, you know, Willie is so Willie.
0: Another Willie Nelson questions: In preparing to write "Honeysuckle Rose," did you spend time on the road with Willie Nelson to get a feel for that lifestyle?
1: Yeah, but I had kind of been, you know, off and on, little at a time here and there, before I ever started writing that. So, so I knew enough about. It. I did, I had been on the bus enough to have a pretty good sense of what that life was like. But I, but you know. I don't ever really try to do research. I just kind of believe that that you know you just already know. You might not know you know, but once you start writing, you find out you pretty much do know. I know that sounds kind of weird, but but that's that's kind of been that's kind of been what I've felt as I go along.
0: Could you discuss the influence writer Jay Frank Dobie's work has had on you?
1: Doby was. Well, this can get long. I don't know how much time you've got. But, I got as
0: much as you want to give me. <laughs>
1: uh, okay. As I said before, my father was a drunk and so on, and my mother took my brother and me because she away because she was afraid, you know, we'd get dragged down with all that stuff. So she ran the little telephone office in Gregory, which is where Man comes from. And then after that, she got a job running the telephone office in Edna, Texas, which was bigger. And But again, we lived in the telephone office, but now we actually had, you know, a, a bedroom and a living room and so on. Anyway, so we moved to Edna, and down the street and around the corner was a hardware store. And the hardware store was run by a man named Westoff, who was— Terrifically nice man. And I used to go in there, and he would give me nails. I mean, I was five and six years old. He would give me nails, and he'd give me old boards and things like that. I think he gave me a saw one time and so on. But he was also a storyteller. And he told me a story about an escaped slave that got loose or ran loose in the Navidad River bottom. And for years and years, the ranchers and the people around there tried to catch her, but they never could. And for a while then, they found her tracks in the Navidad River bottom, but also with her tracks were the tracks of a child. And then, again, they couldn't find her, and that went on for a year or so. And then all of a sudden, the tracks of the child disappeared. And he told me that story, and I, I, it just uh, really got me, uh, I guess because of how we were living. And I used to imagine how what a sad story that was, you know, that that, that child had been, you know, snake bit or a panther had gotten it or some uh, disease or whatever. And I just, I was, I was so moved by that, even at that age. Then we wound up living in, on a ranch in Blanco. My mother remarried. And I had an aunt who worked at a bookstore in Houston. And at Christmas, she sent me one of Dobie's books, Old Time Tales of Texas. And when I opened it, the third story, I think it was the third story, made the fourth story, was about the wild woman of the Navidad which I had heard as an oral tradition from Mr. Westoff in the hardware store. Well, it just absolutely set me afire, because it was the first time I realized that writing in a book could come out of your own experience. And, and I, just, I just simply never got over it. Uh, so Dobie became my hero. And I got all of his books over the years, years and some of the ones that he had written up in. Then, when I went to college and I was at the University of Texas Press, my girlfriend knew of my uh, affection for Dobie's books. So she bought one of Dobie's books and took it to him and had him autograph it for me for my birthday. And, of course, it just knocked me off my feet to have a book signed by J. Frank Bogey, who was my hero, because of the Wild Woman of the Navidad. So she said, well, you should go see him. You should go see him. So finally I called, and, and I did go see him. And we became friends, and he became my mentor from really from then until he died. But he was a huge influence. And his work was a huge influence. He was a folklorist, but he was also a chronicler. I mean, you know, he wrote the stories down, and those were the stories of early Texas. And those are the stories that a lot of novelists, you know, have mined for material, for novels and so on. Dobie was uh, Dobie gave a great gift to writers in Texas. And, and I mean, you know, and he was exceedingly generous to me just in in showing interest, you know. And he would give me articles he thought I should read if I wanted to be a writer and he would give me pieces he had written and so and just to carry it on a little further. So I had a good Dobie collection and then many years later, in fact well now it's twenty some odd thirty years ago, his pump Doby died and his former Secretary, wonderful lady, called me and said she had inherited everything. And she said, Would you like to buy Adobe's desk? And I said, You know, I absolutely would. So she said, Well, come on over. So I went over there and she told me how much. She had an agent there who was pricing things, but she told me how much it was. And I said, Fine. And I was at Adobe's desk writing a check to her for the purchase of that desk. And I looked across the room, and there were about 30 boxes piled up on top of each other. And I asked what what that was. And she said, well, that's what's left of Mr. Dobie's writing archive. And I just assumed those would go to the University of Texas and said so. And she said, no. She said, I'm going to sell them at the the, uh, house sale tomorrow. I said, oh, my God. I said, how much? So she went over, and uh, she went in the next room with her agent, and I went over and just opened one of the boxes and looked in, and there was a manuscript, and there was Dobie's research archives on panthers and bears and rattlesnakes and just all kind of stuff. And there was the manuscript of The Wild Woman of Nevada, or the book that it came out of. So she came back in and she told me how much. I called Sally, who was the girlfriend who had given me the autograph book by Doby years before. We, we became husband and wife not long after that.
0: In any event,
1: I called Sally and said, If I make this check for this much with cash, and she said, Yes. So I bought what was left of Doby's archives, put them in my pickup, took them to my office, and then over the next. Month or so went through them. Sally and I decided that we would use those Dobie's archives to create a collection of southwestern literature, and we talked to various uh, universities, but we settled on Texas State University in San Marcos, and we have and there's a big collection over there, the Whitworth collections at Texas State University. It all it was all started by Dobie's stuff. We have also built a collection to go along with it of photography, southwestern and Mexican photography, and now we've just started another collection, which is music, which will, you know, be Texas and southwestern musicians, songwriters, and so on. So that little spark from Dobie uh, is its really resulted in some nice things for the culture.
0: Okay, uh, this has nothing to do with filmmaking or writing, but this will be the final question. Could you talk about meeting Elvis Presley?
1: You know, Elvis's first fans uh, were country kids because he was on, like, Louisiana Hayride and so on, and that's what we all listened to. So we knew about Elvis, and we were fans. And one day, somebody at school said, well, he's going to be playing at the Coliseum in San Antonio. This was his first tour. So three of us, you know, put our nine cents together. You could buy a gallon of gas for nine cents in those days. We drove to San Antonio, and we were just astonished. I mean, you could barely get into the parking area at the Coliseum. There were were so many people and so many cars. And, I mean, we we thought we were the only ones that knew about Elvis Presley, but, you know, everybody did. So anyway, we found a place to park. The show was way, way, way sold out. So we were just kind of milling around. And I looked on the side of the Coliseum, and there was a tree that grew up the side of the building, way in the back. So I said, just a minute. So I went over there, and I climbed up the tree to the second floor and uh, looked in the window and there was Elvis being interviewed by some reporter from the San Antonio paper. And he saw me and he came over to the window and, uh, you know, said, hey. And I said, well, you know, we had driven from Blanco to try to see, but all the tickets were sold. He said, well, just a minute. So he pulled a paper towel out of the machine and wrote a note to the doorkeeper saying, let these three fellows in. I know them. Thanks, Elvis Presley. So I climbed down the tree with that. And we went through the front door, showed it to the doorkeeper. And he let us in. And he, wanted, he said, well, let me have that note, but I wouldn't give it to him. So I've still got it. It's actually over at the collection now. And we'll be a part of the music collection, which we'll just starting."
0: I would like to thank William D. Whitliffe for agreeing to do the interview. Remember, Barbarossa will be shown Saturday, March 10, 2018, at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the Auditorium. Today's music is from Lonesome Dove by Basil Polderis.